Professional sports play a huge role in American public life, and their absence has been a much lamented and much discussed aspect of the current pandemic. Today's guest is a reporter for the New York Times who covers the NFL and its impact and its role in American life. He's Ken Belson this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. With me as he is every week, but virtually, is my great friend and colleague, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Story in the Public Square sits down every week with the best storytellers around to try to make sense of the big issues facing the United States today. We're joined this week by Ken Belson, a sports reporter for the New York Times who covers the NFL. Ken, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jim. You know, there's a lot that we want to talk to talk to you about, and and a, and a lot of uh, really great reporting that you've done uh, over your career. But let's start with sort of this moment where we are. Uh, we've, uh, we're taping this the first week in June. Uh, the country has been convulsed by protests and uh, uh, racial uh, racial dis- unrest. Uh, we had the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis a couple of weeks ago. Um, in the NFL has, uh, you know, plays intimately in this, uh, thinking about the Kaepernick issue, uh, thinking about uh, race in the NFL. Give us your sense of the way the league itself has responded to uh, to this, this moment. Well, it's interesting as I reflect back on uh, when Kaepernick first took a knee at the preseason of 2016 and over the arc of the four years that we've come since, um, in some ways, the NFL has been chastened and learned a lesson um, by trying to ignore him, uh, which is essentially what was their strategy back in 2016 and 2017, and probably would have continued had President Trump not called out the league um, in September of that year of 2017. Um, but you saw Roger Goodell uh, on Saturday evening uh, be the first major sports commissioner to come out with a statement about the George uh, Floyd murder. Uh, although he didn't use those words, and at least address the unrest. Um, he was uh, criticized for it. I mean, the commissioner typically is anyway. Um, but the fact that he was the first to jump in and not the NBA, not Major League Baseball, which have very different uh, records when it, it has to do with race relations. Um, so I think they're trying to be more proactive. And yet uh, it, there's still a huge divide between how people perceive the NFL and, and um, the reality of what goes on in the league. And it's a really interesting league. Um, you know, 70%, 75% of the players are African-American. Uh, 70% of the fans are white. Um, all of the owners, uh, there are no black owners in the NFL. There's a Muslim American owner and a Korean American owner. Uh, but by and large, it's a very white ownership. And almost all of the top uh, uh positions at the league, both head coaches, team presidents, general managers, except for a handful, are also white. So the dynamic for friction is built into the structure of the league. 
and it has struggled to address it over the years in the form of the Rooney Rule uh, to prompt teams to hire more uh, players, coaches, and general managers of color. But it has fallen short over the years, and that's one of the reasons why it's such a um, emotional issue when it comes to football in the NFL. And then there's the other um, maybe more obvious point, which is it's the biggest league. And so it always gets the most attention, no matter what it does, good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah. Do you have a sense though? I mean, can you peel the, the, the layers back a little bit on why the NFL has struggled uh, with, with race, particularly when you look at the demographic makeup of its players? Yeah. Uh, part of it's structural to the NFL, uh, a lot of the other leagues, uh, the NBA, particularly uh, Major League Baseball, are very much uh, commissioner-driven, and uh, they hold a lot. David Stern, when he was around, really had a, a strong hand in policies and set the tone for the owners. The NFL is a very different league. It's an owner-driven league, and I know people attach a lot of meaning to what Roger Goodell does. But at the end of the day, he's really trying to suss out what the owners want. And so his job is very much different. He's more of a listener and a kind of um, uh, uh, trying to find a conciliatory tone out of all of the 32 owners' opinions. And that's a different dynamic. And so it takes longer for the league to come to a consensus. And Roger Goodell may have his own personal feelings on what should be done, but he very much follows the lead of the owners. And so uh, that structure makes them a bit creaky when it comes to fast-moving events like Colin Kaepernick or most apparently Ray Rice and domestic violence. These problems just snowball really quickly with the league and they play catch-up because they're always trying to react and gauge the owners in the room as well as the events around them. So Ken, uh, Roger Goodell was one voice reacting to the murder of George Floyd, but there were other, many other voices within the NFL, just sort of break down uh, what some of the other reactions were uh, from whether it be from coaches, players, or owners. Uh, I, I do not profess to have a, you know, a, a really broad view of the entire reaction, but you do. So give us that sort of broad view. So um, my sense here was that Roger Goodell wanted to set the tone and be out front. Uh, he was not the first owner uh, or uh, league official to um, come out with a statement. Arthur Blank down in Atlanta came out with a statement uh, later or late last week. Um, but I think he's trying to cre create a nudge the owners along by saying, I'll stick my neck out. You should follow. Um, but ultimately, he can't. I mean, Jerry Jones in Dallas, uh, other owners, they have to do it on their own. And he can't obligate them to say anything. Um, now, Look, there were words missing even from Roger Goodell's statement. The word Kaepernick was not included, uh, nor was the word police. And I think that was picked up by some players who um, really kind of went at him for it publicly. Uh, these are players who protested with Kaepernick, and so perhaps that's not surprising. What was surprising to me was some of the NFL coaches themselves coming out, and they normally keep their mouths quiet on these issues and let let a consensus form around a team. But Brian Flores, who's one of the four uh, head coaches of color, uh, the head coach of the Miami Dolphins, had a very interesting and strong statement about how he's lost friends in the NFL over the Kaepernick issue. And so people were sort of bearing their souls in ways that maybe were um, not the typical NFL, you know, um, tough exterior, uh, manly message that you, you often get, but, but 
I think there was a lot of soul searching being done by some of the uh, most powerful people in the league. So that that potentially is is a good outcome from a very very bad situation. Well, that's what I partly am was alluding to earlier is that I think Kaepernick, you know, deliberately or not, is, has ultimately taught the league a lesson that you should try and confront these problems when they're in front of you, instead of trying to paper them over with marketing programs or, um, you know, empty statements and moving, trying to move right along. Now, in fairness, uh, I don't, fairness, probably not the right word, but, but there is the calendar, right? There are no games there are no fans to answer to right now. There's nobody's going to boo them. Um, whereas back in 2017, you know, fans literally were booing the players in the stadium in real time. So in a way, it's safe for the players and the coaches and the others to come out now uh, with no business consequence. Um, there's no TV cameras on them. Um, so it's an interesting moment in that the NFL is trying to come to grips with this when it's not in the spotlight per se. Do you, do you have any doubt, or I, let, let me not lead the question so much. Um, does Colin Kaepernick, would he would he have a job in the NFL? Would his career have been longer uh, if it weren't for the controversy? Uh, absolutely. I think somebody would have signed him. Now, there's debate about uh, was he Super Bowl caliber, uh, whatever. But when you see the parade of second and third string quarterbacks that were offered contracts ahead of him, even back in 2017, uh, you have to you have to assume that yes, he had more talent than most of the players. Now, from a business perspective, uh, the owners saw it as a as a lose lose situation. You're going to have a guy coming in who's going to take all the oxygen in the locker room. And as a parallel, when the Jets signed Tim Tebow uh, as the third string quarterback, every reporter went to Tim Tebow's locker and not only asked Tim Tebow what he thought being the 53rd man on the roster. But they were asking the other 52 players, what do you think about Tim Tebow? And so if you're trying to build a team dynamic, that's incredibly disruptive. Let's take even the politics of the flag and the anthem out of it. Just having one player dominate in that way uh, is is tough for a coach to stomach. So I think, um, and that's just a practical perspective. And then, of course, there's the issue of would fans start burning their season tickets and so forth. Um, I think their fears were overstated. I think fans would have moved on. Um, and I think a lot of fans, and I've spoken to them even back then, uh, they criticized the league, they criticized Roger Goodell, they criticized Kaepernick. But when their team started winning, they, they, their threat, yeah, their threat to burn their season tickets didn't didn't come through. So, um, and I'm thinking particularly of fans I spoke to back in Jacksonville, um, you know, who were, you know really up in arms over this whole thing and told me they were going to go turn in their season tickets. And if you remember, the Jaguars finished 12 and four that year and they were along for that ride. So fans say one thing and then do another. That's often the case. So there is another racial issue that involves at least one NFL team, and that's the Washington Redskins. And uh, as you know, um, of course, many Native Americans find that offensive there is a not my mascot movement, not just regarding the Redskins, but also at, at the college and even at the local level. And some states have actually outlawed the use of mascot Native American imagery for athletics. Talk talk to us, if, if you can, a little bit about the Redskins, what's going on there. They refuse to change the name or even, as I understand, even acknowledge that it's an issue. 
Well, they they fought it in court, and uh, the the case was brought in a, a rather obscure part of the federal government, which is the Patent and Trademark Office. And ultimately, the ruling, the first ruling, went against the Redskins um, that the name was pejorative and and hurtful. But on appeal, was overturned, and and that really ended the issue. That's already a year, two, oh, probably two years ago now. So there's no more legal pressure on them. Uh, whatever moral pressure there was on them, they were uh, the owner of the team, Dan Snyder, uh, either chose to ignore um, or didn't hear in the first place. Um, and Roger Goodell set the tone at the very outset by saying publicly that he grew up a Redskins fan uh, in the Washington area. So when the commissioner's out there going to bat for you, um, you know, I'm sure the owner uh, didn't feel the obligation to go in to um, bend any further either. Um, but those calls have been renewed now. Um, and I think uh, you've seen, as you pointed out, on the college level, they've um, understood the meaning in a deeper way and have had made adjustments uh, in many, many universities, including here in New York. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy at Salve Virginia University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Ludes, L-U-D-E-S. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 17 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Ken Belson, a talented writer and reporter who covers the National Football League in all its facets, not just the games, for the New York Times. You can connect with Ken on Twitter at E-L underscore Belson. That's E-L underscore B-E-L-S-O-N. You know, even prior to the the murder of, of Mr. Floyd, the NFL had announced a new effort to try to get more coaches and more executives into the front office. Uh, so for, for the audience that isn't familiar with that development, tell us a little bit about that and and where where does that stand in this in this current context? Uh, it's an interesting parallel, uh, and it's sort of woven into the problems, the structural problems that the league has had uh, with, as I said, a very overwhelmingly white leadership and uh, the workforce being, the players being uh, 70 to 75 percent African-American. Uh, the so-called Rooney Rule, named after Dan Rooney, has been around since 2003, and it came after Johnny Cochran and Cyrus Mary threatened to bring the league to court um, over the issue. And so they came up with this policy back then that teams were obligated to call at least one minority candidate for a head coaching uh, vacancy. Um, but teams have uh, played around with the rules. Um, you can leave a message for a coach and claim that you spoke to him. Um, you can give a half-hearted interview. You could call the same coach every year. Uh, and all of those things have happened. And the league has almost never fined any teams for bending the rules or even breaking them. Only one notable case at the very beginning against the Detroit Lions. Um, so the league has expanded it. Uh, it now uh, requires teams to have uh, two minority candidates considered. Uh, and those 
head coach vacancies, uh, the candidates for those jobs, have to be interviewed by the actual decision maker, usually the owner. So that ups the stakes and involves the owners um, in the case, in the search, um, you know. But the NFL wants to say it's a meritocracy, and at some level it is. Uh, but when you see only four uh, head coaches uh, and many very good coaches, black particularly black coaches, end up as uh, defensive coordinators, kind of in dead end spots where they kind of hit a ceiling, uh, it's disheartening. And I know the coaches have been more forthright. Um, but they, they can only do so much. They can't do the hiring. They can only appeal to their bosses, meaning the owners, uh, to do the hiring. Well, I, 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 I can rem- I'm old enough to remember when uh, a black quarterback was a big deal in the, in, in the NFL. Uh, that, that that moment seems to have passed. Uh, but it's sort of remarkable that in, in the year 2020, uh, we're still having conversations about uh, African-Americans and people of color being able to rise to senior positions in any organization. Well, that's a good point. Uh, you know, players are different, right? You'll, you'll take the most talented player. Uh, it's very mercenary that way. Um, but people who have uh, looked at the Rooney Rule and the league's policies over the years have said that it's not just the owners who are almost all white. But they surround themselves with other decision makers who are very much like them. And so, um, you know, you tend to want to hire, and this is true in corporate America, this isn't just the mm-hmm. NFL, but you tend to want to hire people that you relate to uh, or feel comfortable with, whatever the term of art is. And that means somebody who ends up looking like you, maybe coming from a similar background. And a lot of black coaches don't come from those backgrounds if you're an Ivy League educated. Uh, white owner. And so you have to be brave enough to bridge the gap. Um, I think the Steelers have been one of the standout organizations on this. Uh, They've only had uh, a handful of coaches since 1969 when Chuck Knoll was hired. Uh, They did hire uh, uh, black quarterbacks early on. And Dan Rooney does um, deserve a lot of credit for that um, and leading the way. But he's only one owner, and the way the league is structured, one owner can't tell the other owner what to do. Um, and frankly, neither can the league office. They can only nudge them forward. One of the other hallmarks of your writing about the NFL is something I, I greatly admire, in addition to what we've all just been talking about here in terms of race, is mental health of, of players. Uh, it's a violent sport. We know that. It has all kinds of pressures. There, there are issues of addiction. There are issues of brain damage, and then there are people like Junior Seau who committed suicide, and I know you've written about that. What drew you to write about the mental health of players, aside from just a basic humanity, I would guess? Because it's such an important issue, and, and 10 years ago, it wasn't even discussed if it was even recognized. Well, I'm, I'm lucky uh, uh, because I took over the NFL beat uh, in 2013, uh, but prior to that, had been doing some reporting on the tales of coattails of Alan Schwartz, who really wrote uh, from 2007 to about 2011-12, wrote uh, really most of the groundbreaking stories we know about um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy and concussions and, and retired player health. And so when he left the department, uh, I had been covering the first lawsuits against the NFL um, you know, and how they started to collect and ended up getting bundled into a federal lawsuit. And so at that point in 2012, 2013, my boss said to me, um, I'd like you to just take this over as your beat. Alan had 
left and moved to a different department. And uh, the more you do it, I remember Alan telling me, um, it's depressing. It, it really wears you out. And uh, at the same time, it makes you want to write more of these stories because the players have been tossed aside. Um, yes, many of them have made money, but I bet you ask any of them, yes, they'd like to play again, but boy, they'd love to have their health back. And, uh, you know, Jason Stallman, my boss at the time, uh, said, you know, the key to this story is to see it as a public health issue. Um, yes, these players are well-known. Junior Seau, obviously, and I've written about dozens and dozens of other former players with health issues. But they're a window into the sport, and they're also uh, a window into uh, youth sports because there are studies that show the the earlier that you start playing football, the more problems accumulate later in your life because brains are vulnerable they're, when they're still developing. And so I look at it in broader than just an NFL retiree story. I look at it into what's the cost of playing a violent sport. And we make all sorts of trade-offs as parents, as coaches, as players, as a society, because we're investing in tickets and watching Sunday night football and other things. So uh, this is what it should look like. We should be seeing the whole story, not just a guy who ends his career and we never hear him about him again. So I've really uh, finished the point. I think I've branched out into youth football and tried to broaden the conversation around risk and football. Do you think that this is existential for the future of professional football in the United States? Um, yes, in the same way that uh, boxing went through it. Um, so I'm not of the mind that football is going away. I just think it's too big of an institution. But I do think that a generation of parents are telling their kids to go play soccer or basketball or lacrosse, which by the way, has plenty of its own health issues, but football particularly because collisions are part of every single play, uh, I think is a very different standard than even ice hockey, uh, where you come off the field or the ice uh, for a shift or two, um, you know, and, and checking now certainly at the youth level uh, is, is de-emphasized. So I, th I think it is a problem for the league. I don't think it's going away. I think the league is trying to adapt. Uh, USA Football is trying to adapt. Um, but I'm always struck by the, the words safe football uh, or even safer football. At some level, it can't be safe. There's always risk involved. So you talk about parents. Are you seeing anecdotal evidence or, or any studies or, or any way of determining whether parents now of, of young men boys are saying go into soccer go into some other sport i mean is that that's happening i, I certainly have heard that you, you would know better than i yeah the statistics on high school sports participation um get to that point um now to be clear uh football has seen a decline 10 percent over the last 10 years in participation in high school football but sports across the board have lost participation uh, thanks to video games, changing demographics, um, economics, and so forth. So football's not alone. And in some cases, football hasn't dropped as much as some other sports. Um, but you are seeing increases or smaller declines in other sports like soccer. Um, there was a series of stories I wrote, uh, actually, over the last five years. I visited a town called Marshall, Texas, about 25,000 people, uh, died in the wool football town, the Friday Night Lights motif. And five, six years ago, parents were starting to pull their kids out of football. 
uh, putting them in soccer, in baseball, which is very popular there, and basketball, um, and just realizing, you know what? There are plenty of sports out there. Why take a chance? And Marshall was struggling. They canceled their seventh grade uh, tackle football program and the Pop Warner uh, League shut down. Uh, they didn't have enough kids. I went back two years later and a new league had started up. There were still parents who wanted their kids to play. And the most interesting thing I found was along racial lines. The uh, white parents were taking their kids and putting them in other sports the black parents uh, were keeping their kids in football because they saw it as an economic opportunity for them to get to college. And also uh, because they saw coaches as strong father figures who keeps their kids off the streets um, and grounded. So the, it was a fascinating set of stories to write because it put it on its head. It was football was much bigger than a sport in many towns and many places in America. And that's why I think it'll probably um, endure because of it. You know, so we're, again, we're taping this uh, first week in June. Um, we're in the midst of, a, of, a, of real sort of violent civil disturbances in the United States stemming from the murder of an African-American man. We're also, oh, by the way, in the midst of a pandemic that had effectively shuttered American society. Um, but one of the things that I've heard pretty consistently since the end of March is a lament about the loss of professional sports. Uh, we like our bread and we like our circus in the United States, and, 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 and people are lamenting that. And we've got about two minutes left. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about sort of the role that professional sports plays in American society. And then specifically, uh, based on what you know now, will there be an NFL season this fall? So the first question's uh, absolutely relevant and continually surprises me, um, you know, as a reporter how much people care about this. Uh, now, listen, I grew up as a fan too, but you get a bit jaded, particularly when you become a sports reporter and you start to look down out of the press box and say, haven't we all grown out of this? Uh, and yet, every, <laughs> and, and yet, you know, as my wife will tell you, you know, I sit in front of the TV and I watch the Mets games, win or lose, bad season, good season. So there's something compelling about watching uh, live drama. I mean, every night is a reality show in sports. Um, and, and that's something unique in our culture, right? I mean, in all cultures, but sports particularly, where everything is so pre-programmed, um, you can't binge watch sports. You got to watch it in real time. Um, and I know there's workarounds like Red Zone. So it's great theater. I mean, let's face it. Um, and I've seen this in so many places I've been where I went as a New York Times reporter uh, into a part of the country, let's just call it Red America, where perhaps the New York Times isn't sold on every newsstand. Um, and you, you tell them you're a sports reporter and you write about the NFL and you're welcomed into their homes. I mean, it is the ultimate icebreaker. It is the national water cooler. Um, good sports, uh, basketball, whatever it is, but football in particular, because it really is a truly national sport now and it's and the participation is national. So, uh, I, you know, we can't get away from it. And it's actually, in a weird way, given me meaning during this pandemic when I think that, oh, I'm writing about something nobody cares about. And yet, you write a good sports story and you get a ton of interest. So, uh, no, it's part of our fabric, uh, American fabric. As to the question uh, of the season, I think there'll be games. I think it'll be tough to get fans in, in the stadium, uh, certainly until the fall, uh, maybe beyond. Uh, we may have a fanless uh, NFL year. Well, uh, you're not a fanless reporter. Ken Belson, thank you so much for being with us. He's Ken Belson with the New York Times. That is all the time we have this week. 
Uh, but if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on uh, Facebook or Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>